Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. My guest today is Janani Hariharan, a PhD candidate working in the field of soil microbial ecology at Cornell University. Her current research is on the biogeography and ecology of Streptomyces, but some of her research has also included work with human genetic data. She's an advocate for the inclusion and the rights of minority and other stereotyped groups in STEM, and her love for stories breathes life into her compelling science communication initiatives. Janani Hariharan, welcome to Tidbits of Research. Your current research is studying how microbes evolve and disperse in the soil. Why is knowing this information about a microbe helpful? What kinds of things can it help us do or infer? First of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. So you're right, this is what I study. And I find it really exciting just as a basic science question, because you know how we know that some animals and some plants are found in certain parts of the world. We know that kangaroos are found in Australia. We know that elephants are found in some parts of Asia or Africa. We don't know anything like that about microbes. We don't actually know which microbes are found where, how they move, how far, how far they can travel, or anything like that. So just as a scientist, I like to ask questions, and I think this is just a very fascinating question, given that the microbial diversity is so much higher than the diversity of animals or plants on Earth. And so I think just from a curiosity standpoint, it's really exciting. But the other aspect to what I'm studying is also um, how do geographical features like mountains or lakes or climatic conditions affect how microbes disperse and they move across different environments. And I think that's really critical because we all know that climate change is happening right now and it's projected to get worse in the future. And what that means is a shift in climatic conditions and a shift in what our landscape looks like, you know, with the changing and the moving of some of these geographical features that I talked about. And so given how important microbes are to our ecosystem, I study terrestrial microbes, but of course there are people who study microbes in freshwater and oceans and glaciers and things like that. So given how important these microbes are to our systems, I think it's so important to understand how they're going to respond to climate change and to the different things that climate change is going to throw our way. That is fascinating. So you're a student in soil and crop sciences here at Cornell Mm -hmm. and We're talking about microbes, so I feel like that requires some biology. There's bits of ecology. And now that we're mentioning climate change, we're obviously talking some politics. Yeah. So it seems that there's research is at the intersection of a number of fields. Um, What kinds of tools are you using in order to tackle these kinds of questions? Yeah, so this is both something I enjoy and something that I find really frustrating because I feel like when I was trained, either in my undergraduate education or during my master's, when I was trained to be a scientist, or I am still training to be a scientist, the tools that we're trained in come from certain disciplines based on the majors we choose or based on the people who train us on the classes that we take. Um, there aren't a ton of interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary trainings that I have experienced at least, um, but it's been an absolute pleasure discovering what people in other fields are doing. So for example, um, I have one particular project where I collected some samples from the Adirondacks Mountains in upstate New York, and I'm trying to understand how elevation, this elevational gradient that I was walking on, affects the kind of microbial communities that we find in the soil. So do they change with elevation? Do we find different types of microbes at higher elevations than we do at lower ones? And we know that, you know, the top of the mountain looks really different from the bottom of the mountain just by looking at the trees, for example. But what I didn't know was if that affected the microbes also. 
for the Adirondacks in particular, they have a really interesting glaciation history. So about um, 10 to 15,000 years ago is when a lot of deglaciation happened in these regions, uh, meaning that the glaciers melted, meaning that more and more soil was exposed. If you're a microbe, if you're a soil microbe and you want to colonize a new habitat, the habitat needs to be open in the first place, right? And so that was happening at a fairly rapid scale these uh, 10 to 15,000 years ago. What I didn't know is how rapidly was it happening? Where was it happening? Because it happens in patches. It's not a uniform process. And so this is one of the questions I'm still trying to find answers to, is what happened on this single mountain that I've been studying. It's just over a couple kilometers but sometimes working at such a small scale is actually frustrating because people aren't able to tell me what happened across these two kilometers. They can tell me what happened across the whole region, but it's hard to get answers to what happened on this particular tiny stretch of one mountain. Do you use the same sample? Do you have to resample? Yeah, so the samples, um, the soil samples that I collected are really just used to help me understand the types of communities that live in the soil and what are the properties of the soil today. If I wanted to learn about the history of that soil, um, I would have to talk to geologists who've done work in that region. I don't think I'd be able to use the same soil samples to get those answers, unfortunately. So you were saying a little bit about this given the training that you have had and to what extent you have felt prepared, but what kind of background or interests, I guess, um, you feel like one should have in order to kind of not necessarily succeed, but, you know, even get into being able to ask questions and answer questions in this field? Personally, I know there was so much that I wasn't ready for. There's so much that I had to learn on the fly. And I think this is true for so many graduate students and scientists that I've interacted with. One of the biggest things that I had to learn by myself was programming. I didn't have any formal programming education. It's not something that was emphasized very heavily for me in school or in college. But once I finished my master's, it quickly became clear to me that learning how to code was essential mm. when you're working with larger data sets. So I work with microbiome data and we get DNA sequencing data back. And, you know, depending on the number of samples, you can have up to a few terabytes of data. And so knowing how to handle and manipulate that data is a really essential skill, right? As well as doing sanity checks because you can't trust everything the computer gives you. You need to be able to verify for yourself whether that data has any biological meaning or not. So knowing how to use coding to do these things for myself was one of the things that I really lacked. And so to me, that stands out as something that is really, really important because my life has become so much better after I learned how to do just a little bit of basic coding. Mm -hmm. Do you have a story of how, I don't know, you are analyzing some data and you were basically a story that captures this intersection between what coding can give you and the information about the microbes in the soil and how without a little bit of one or the other, things just didn't click? Yeah, I think the only thing that comes to mind is I remember from my master's thesis, um, I was working with soil microbes as well. So I had a bunch of genes that I pulled from my soil microbial community and I had assigned functions of these genes. So I had this huge Excel sheet, right? And there were tens of thousands of genes. And I had in one sheet, I had all of the abundances of these genes. In another sheet, I pulled data from this huge global database that had the assigned function and the pathway corresponding to each of these genes. I didn't know how to code. I had never opened the terminal before. And so I know I spent months checking and cross-checking every single gene between these different sheets, calculating and going back and forth. 
Oh no. If I had known what I do now about coding, even the most basic Unix-based or R-based coding, this would have been over within a few hours. Oh no, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, and I, I did what I could at the time. I, you know, I used VLOOKUP and I used a few Excel tips and tricks that I could find, but I was so nervous about the idea of coding. And I just had it in my mind that this isn't something that I could learn or I could be good at. I don't know why, but I just had this internal resistance to it. I actually took a couple years after my master's to work at a job in a genomic startup facility where I was exclusively doing coding. <laughs> I didn't even set foot in the wet lab for a couple years. I was just um, working on a computer, learning how to code, making all the mistakes and doing all the things. And I can honestly say that my understanding of biology is a little better now because coding really allows you to think about patterns. Hmm. I, I feel like I was looking at things at very small scales when you're doing like the one gene to gene comparison versus when I code and when I think about how to automate the process such that it works for all of my samples at the same time or all of the genes at the same time. What I'm really teaching myself to do is, is think at the process scale, training myself to identify these larger patterns across biological systems, which is what I leverage to write my code. And so it's been a really useful skill, but it's also really expanded the way I think about biology. Was the work you were mentioning the work at Gannett Labs? Yeah, yeah. So this was in India, yeah. Right. And you were part of the bioinformatics team, I guess? Yes. What I found really cool and humbling about that project when I read about it <laughs> um, was that your project had an application in identifying metastasis in cancer patients. Do you think work in that project has affected the kinds of projects you're looking into now or the kinds of projects you would like to work in the future? Um, I think working on that project gave me a much better appreciation for what bioinformatics work could look like. Mm. And so I am more confident about my ability to do data analysis and about my ability to make decisions with data analysis. Um, and so even if I don't know how to code a particular thing, I have the resources now and I have the tools to know where to look and how to teach myself. As far as the content itself goes, um, unfortunately, I think microbes are my first love. They're always going to be. Um, I don't have anything against working on human diseases or the human body. I think it's critical. But, you know, there's so few of us who work on microbes and microbes in the environment, especially. And I love being one of the few people who do work on environmental microbes. Do you remember when your love for microbes started? I do. You do? I actually do. This is something I've been thinking a lot about recently. So this was in college. So this was my... It might have been my first microbiology course, and it had a lab component to it. And so one day, I remember um, they were teaching us how to make slides. You know, one of the most essential things you learn as a microbiologist is how to make a slide. You take a few cells from the microbe that you're growing, you put it on a glass slide. Um, sometimes you stain it, which is just adding a little bit of colored dye to make the microbe um, pop out a little more. It, it looks a little more vibrant. You can identify features better. And then you throw it under the microscope, and then you can examine what it looks like and people will sometimes take you know just water samples and put them under the microscope and you can see all the different organisms that live in the water for example so that day i know we were working with a particular fungus aspergillus niger you remember the fungus i do it was such an important moment for me it was just it was such a moment 
I wasn't very enthusiastic about it before because honestly, microbes are so tiny and working with them can seem unexciting because you can't really see them. You can't really see what's going on. So, you know, yeah, I got a needle, scraped some cells, put them into a droplet of water, added some dye, and I was like, cool, I'm just going to see a field of blue under the microscope because the dye was blue. Well, big whoop, right? And then I actually looked under the microscope and I was shocked. I was so shocked because I saw these beautiful, um, so it's a fungus. So it has this stalk and then you have, they're called conidiophores. You have this sort of rounded head. It looks like a dandelion a little bit. Oh, that sounds beautiful. And you can see the spores and everything popping out of it. It was just so beautiful and it was something I had never expected to see. And that just taught me the power of microscopy. And the fact that just because I can't see these tiny little things that are all around me doesn't mean that they don't exist and they're not actively living lives of their own. You know, it was such a big moment. And what's funny is I told you I've been thinking about this a lot recently is that I haven't actually used microscopy a ton in any of the work I've done since then. But recently, I've started to do that more and more because I've been trying to isolate this particular species of bacteria from the soil. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways I identify if I have the bacterium or not is by looking at it under the microscope. And so it's been almost, I don't know, six or seven years. And this is the next time I've actually been excited to start seeing things under the microscope again. That sounds lovely. Yeah, it's been exciting. So you focus on the bacterial genus Streptomyces. Did I say that right? Streptomyces. You were so close. Myces. At the end, I just... <laughs> what makes studying this one in particular worthwhile? Mm, that's a good question. So most people are already familiar with streptomyces, even if they don't know it. So you know the smell that comes from the soil when it just starts to rain, when the water hits the earth? I love it. Yeah, the beautiful fresh smell. That's actually Streptomyces. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, a lot of other actinobacteria, which is the group that Streptomyces belongs to, they produce this compound called geosmin, which produces that characteristic odor. That's not why we study Streptomyces. <laughs> uh, this is just to say that Streptomyces are everywhere and people are probably very familiar with them. Mm -hmm. Streptomyces are fascinating, fascinating creatures live in the soil for the most part, although I know some people have found streptomyces um, in marine sediments as well. The reason we study them in particular is because we're interested in the ecology of soil bacteria. And I ask questions about, you know, what is the biogeography? As in, where do you find these bacteria? Why do we find them in certain places and not others? I ask questions about their dispersal and things like that. And so to answer these questions, the first thing you need is a soil bacterium that's found in a lot of different places. Because if you can't detect it from one site to another, you can't really ask questions about it. So we wanted something that was abundant, found in a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. The other really interesting thing about Streptomyces is that they actually produce single-handedly, I want to say two-thirds or more of all of the commercial antibiotics that we use. As a genus, they're just so potent, and um, I look at their genomes, right, and they have so many gene clusters just coding for these biosynthetic compounds and antibiotics. It's so interesting because we humans leverage them as antibiotics and use them to treat diseases and kill other pathogens. But I think my questions are more about what are streptomyces doing with them? Because they're not prone to the same diseases that we are, mm -hmm. but clearly there's this insane amount of competition going on in the soil underneath our feet, which is why streptomyces are producing so many of these compounds. 
because you know antibiotics are produced by bacteria to kill other microbes to compete with other microbes mm -hmm. in whatever environment they live in and so i just find all of these different facets of streptomyces lifestyles really interesting it's fascinating have you discovered some of the things that they do with these things that we use to create antibiotics so i don't directly work on that mm -hmm. what i work on is the ecological implication of that so I feel like that's a technical term, so let me explain what I mean a little bit. So when I look at the DNA and I identify these gene clusters and I say, okay, this Streptomyces strain has the potential to code for 15 different antibiotics, it doesn't always translate to this Streptomyces strain is producing all of these 15 different antibiotics when it lives in the soil, right? Because the DNA tells me that there's potential for that to happen. But whether that actually happens or not is a completely different question. It depends so much on where the streptomyces lives. So what bacteria are surrounding it? Does it feel the need to express those antibiotics? Because you have to remember that producing, making these antibiotics is a very expensive process um, in, in metabolic terms. They're heavy compounds. They're pretty energy heavy to produce. So you need to have a really good reason for producing them and for secreting them. And what we found is that when we try to grow streptomyces in the lab, and this is a problem that especially people who are looking to discover new antibiotic space, it's just because there's potential based on the genome doesn't mean that we can get these bacteria to produce the same antibiotics in the lab, unfortunately. We call these cryptic gene clusters. A lot of times, these bacteria need the exactly right set of conditions for antibiotic production to happen. And of course, as human beings, we're doing this process of trial and error, trying to give them a bunch of different conditions and see what works. But sometimes you hit the right combination and sometimes you don't, unfortunately. The stuff that I am looking at, though, is, is definitely using the DNA. I'm not looking at the compounds themselves directly. But I'm trying to understand how the diversity of, of these gene clusters varies um, across the U.S., for example. Because bacteria do this interesting thing called horizontal gene transfer. So you know how from human beings, DNA is passed on vertically. Like, I have DNA from both of my parents and so on and so forth. Well, bacteria can also exchange DNA with each other. Like, it would be the equivalent of me sharing a chunk of my DNA with you. That's special. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's such an interesting phenomenon because our estimates of how much this horizontal gene transfer contributes to diversity in the bacterial gene pool is highly variable. I think we all agree on the fact that it does contribute. The percentage, the exact percentage of how much it contributes is, is still widely debated. But I personally believe that horizontal gene transfer is a huge, huge force in shaping bacterial genomes and in shaping bacterial communities. I want to talk about this fascinating talk you gave at part of Cornell Library's SPARK program. Mm -hmm. Scholars present about research and knowledge, like five-minute flash talk about your research and associated topics. It sounds like you remember. I do. Okay. Yeah. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about that? The title was Biodiversity and Social Diversity. Yeah. I'm just smiling because it was one of my favorite talks to give. It, it touched on two things that I'm really passionate about. So as the last few minutes have evidenced, I am very excited about biodiversity, especially microbial biodiversity. But something else that I'm equally passionate about is increasing diversity and retention in academia and in the sciences more specifically and that's just because i happen to be more familiar with the sciences not that other fields don't have a diversity problem and so 
it's something that I found myself thinking about just as an ecologist because we use diversity so much in our studies. We talk about the diversity of communities and of populations and diversity in different habitats and we have so many different indices to measure diversity and compare what two communities look like. It's insane the number of indices we have and the number of tests we have just on this one topic alone. And that just got me thinking about what a nuanced understanding we have of this concept diversity scientifically and how so many different scientists can agree on the fact that diversity in an ecosystem in a community is a beneficial thing because of all the different complementary functions that different species can perform and all the other advantages that sort of build off of each other from that but so many scientists in particular are still very resistant to see this social diversity our social fabric as something that needs to be talked about and i think the key difference for me is that i don't see these two things as separate because i know a lot of people when you confront them about issues of diversity or equity will say well yeah, that's important, but that's not really a part of my science, right? I study bacteria and I, I study how bacterial communities look different from each other. Why does it matter what the racial composition of my research group looks like? Why does it matter who my collaborators are and who I cite in my publications? And I think they're very connected because the people are the ones who do science mm -hmm. or any other field, right? I don't want to make it seem like I'm heavily emphasizing that it's only science that has this problem because I think it's fairly widespread. I just speak to science again because it's just what I know best. And so this talk was sort of the first thing that got me interested in thinking about the connections between these different things. Because as ecologists, something we also think about is like, what are the benefits of diversity and how can we increase diversity in ecosystems that we manage? I still don't have a great conclusion to that, but I'm just wondering if we could leverage some of the concepts that we talk about in science and in our research and present these issues that we all care about and that ultimately affect all of us to people who might otherwise be resistant to talking about these ideas. And the caveat of that is that I don't want to trivialize this issue. I don't want to quantify people and to assign people to categories when we talk about diversity the same way that we do for plants and animals, for example. But I think there's value to be learned from our theoretical understandings of diversity and some of the nuanced discussions we have about plant and animal and microbial biodiversity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Going to piggyback on this point about your advocacy for STEM equity and inclusion, you've been involved with a number of initiatives. And um, in recognition, you've received the Graduate School's 2019 Early Career Exemplary Service Award. Congratulations. Thank you. Why are these such high priority issues for you personally? This is a great and timely question. <laughs> these issues to me are so integral to what I do as a scientist. And I I'm trying to think of a better way to explain that. I think as a graduate student, it's more about survival in academia sometimes <laughs> and I'm trying to you know think of a better way to face that because a lot of faculty that I've met in some of these meetings for example have expressed views that this is extra right this is something you do outside of the time you spend doing research this is something you do in the evenings or on the weekends but some people do this all the time because that's right what they carry yeah so I'm a brown woman I'm an immigrant I'm an international student have a funny accent sometimes. I pronounce words weird sometimes. I have experienced in so many different ways the feeling of being an other in the room. 
And academia isn't very forgiving of people who are others in so many different ways besides the ones that I've just mentioned. And I know for a fact that that feeling has hindered my ability to do science. Those feelings hinder my ability to be fully myself and to participate in whatever is happening. And, you know, the more time I've spent in graduate school, the more I'm learning that so many of my peers are facing the same issues, even though we might share some very different identities. And, you know, on one level, it makes me feel less alone, which is nice. Yeah. But on a different level, it also makes me feel really, really angry and sad mm. because the fact that so many of us are being prevented from doing what we came here to do, to become professionals and experts in our fields because of issues of lack of belonging or because somebody is telling us that we can't be something or do something because we happen to look or present a certain way. I just find that really, really disturbing. Yeah. And then just thinking at a meta level, what message are we sending the people we mentor and we come into contact with? I, I work with an undergraduate student in the lab. Um, if I end up teaching at some point, I'll be teaching students. What message are we sending students about our field and about science and academia if we're not making deliberate efforts to make it more equitable and inclusive? Because people only model or people mostly model what they see. And so I think just by doing things that send this message of, hey, things aren't great right now, but here's what we can do to make it a little bit better. I think we encourage change in these small incremental ways. So it's not about me getting out there and changing the world by participating in all these different things. It's about supporting my fellow graduate students. It's about creating a community that I can live in because the people around me are happy I am automatically happier. I think that's just common sense. If you're being surrounded by people who are happy, it's just everybody's well-being increases. Magic. <laughs> and then just creating a better future just by modeling these different things and little steps of change. Mm -hmm. Speaking of you as an international student, you're the current president of GPSI, the Graduate and Professional um, Students International Group. Mm -hmm. Why did you feel that this group was necessary here at Cornell? Yeah, it's a great question. I should just clarify also that I'm the outgoing president of GPSI. We're having a, a leadership transition this summer, which is very exciting. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times international students aren't included in a lot of traditional definitions of diversity in the U.S. So as an international student, for example, I don't qualify for a lot of diversity fellowships or grants, for example, because I think American higher education can have a sometimes limited view of marginalized social identities in other countries. So for example, I come from India, where cost is a big issue. And so if someone was experiencing cost oppression in India, and they moved to the US, chances are that they might not qualify as an applicant for a diversity fellowship, for example, in any of the traditional underrepresented minority categories listed in the US. But that doesn't change the fact that they've experienced oppression on the basis of one of their identities and that they are truly a representative of their social group, one of the few representatives of their social groups in higher education. So one big reason is that I think we need a better understanding of what oppression and marginalization look like in other parts of the world. And I'm not saying that this group is going to change NSF or NIH guidelines and, and you know, change how we do things drastically. But I think the conversation is important, at least on campus. And then another huge reason is that when I moved here as an international student, the feelings of loneliness 
and the feelings of not knowing what to do or who to talk to, even for the smallest of situations, was really overwhelming. Because when you move across different cultures, especially drastically different cultures, so I moved from India to the US, for example, and they're really different worlds, socially and professionally. There are so many unwritten norms that it takes time to familiarize yourself with. And I think those things could have been so much easier had I had a mentor who had also experienced some of these things and who was able to help me figure out basic things like, hey, if you have a meeting with your advisor, here's the things you can do to make yourself more successful and to set yourself up for a more productive meeting. Like I would just walk into meetings expecting my advisor to have everything figured out and that they would just walk in, he would ask me a bunch of questions, we would have a conversation and I would leave. Except I could have been taking so much more control of things and I could have been asking questions and challenging of his opinions if I disagreed with them and offering my own thoughts on the project and so on and so forth. And that's an issue too because I grew up in a culture where hierarchy is very strongly emphasized and so deference to authority is sort of expected. So this idea of challenging someone who is your supervisor was so new to me and it's still something I struggle with. But then one of the contradictions of my position as a graduate student is that the longer I stay in this project doing my research, the better informed I become. And at some point, as a graduate student, you do become the expert on your project. And you are the person in the world who knows a lot about this niche topic that you're working on. And so a lot of times, you are going to know better than other people in the room. And you will be expected to challenge them if something they say is inconsistent with what you know. And so learning that was really important. Social events were really hard. Um, The first time I got invited to a potluck was so confusing because I had never been to a potluck before I moved to the US. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what do I bring? How much am I supposed to bring? Do I bring plates? Do I bring cutlery? Um, What happens if people don't like what I bring? What happens if people don't like what I cook? Because the cuisine I cook is primarily Indian because that's what I grew up eating. Just so many different questions. And then I'm vegetarian. Allergies. Right. I didn't even know about that. That would have been another thing to freak out about. (laughs) Just, yeah. You know, if I just had someone that I felt confident asking my quote-unquote stupid questions to, it would have made so much of a difference in my life. Yeah, the list goes on and on. There are so many things I wish I'd understood better when I first moved to this country. But the, the point of founding an organization that was specifically for international students was to recognize that there are these specific barriers that international students face just based on their nationality. For example, finding funding is still especially tricky for us because we're not eligible for a lot of fellowships and grant applications that American citizens and permanent residents can submit. And just one example of of so many different types of inequities that can sometimes hold us back. The immigration process in the U.S. is so tricky. Navigating visas and work authorization can be so tricky. And so having a community of people who could turn to each other, because we know the international student community can be quite a large one at most universities, but how well connected are they? And in the case of Cornell, it didn't seem to me like we were well connected. And so I wanted to offer this platform for people to sort of find each other and help each other out, especially if they were incoming students who could use a little extra help along the way. Mm -hmm. You did mention some of the like social and cultural norms. And I think in one article that you write, you you talk about an official term for it, which is the hidden curriculum. Mm -hmm. So... Has it helped to kind of approach this in a scientific manner? It's funny because I don't know that I've approached it in a scientific manner. (laughs) And now I'm wondering, why haven't I? That sounds like a great idea. I think this is an instance where it's been about 
building social networks, I think that's been really important, but also developing enough self-confidence that I felt like it was okay to look stupid sometimes. And I think that's normal even for people who have grown up in the same place, but you've moved to a new city um, or moved to a new environment. There's still things you don't know and you have to be okay with making a few mistakes and with failing a few different times. Um, I think that's just part of the process. But the social network has been so important to me. And I think it's been both students from my own country who are familiar with the transition and with the kind of life that we had back home. You know, it, it's comforting to be in the company of people who understand your struggles, but who also know what it feels like. They've lived in the same cities, they've spoken in the same languages, they're familiar with the same food, and it's good to get together with those groups. But then what I found equally helpful is building a community of American friends who aren't judgmental, who aren't going to laugh in my face if I ask them my weird questions about American culture, but who recognize that, you know, I've only been living here for like three years compared to their 25 years. And so there's just so many things I don't understand. Also, because when you don't grow up in a country, you're not exposed to the history and the social knowledge that's built up over your lifetime. I don't have an instinctive understanding of, you know, what social relations between different groups have been like in the U.S. because I didn't grow up here. I didn't see those interactions modeled for me. That wasn't the history that I learned in my textbooks. But when I go back home, for example, so many things are so instinctive. And that learned knowledge is something that's just missing when you're moving to this new social culture. So yeah, that wasn't a great answer because I didn't do it in a very scientific way at all. I think this has really been about leaning into my discomfort mm. and really building on the social networks that I have to help me navigate these hard situations. Mm -hmm. So when you do go home now, do you still feel very at home? Or do you find bits of yourself that have been changed? Definitely the latter. Yeah. I don't feel as at home as I used to. Mm. But conversely, I appreciate home a lot more than I used to, Aww. right? Because there's so many things that I took for granted back home that I don't have access to here. Tiny things that I never even thought I would miss have become so important. So for example, so I, I come from um, a South Indian city called Chennai. And so Tamar is my mother tongue. And it's interesting because most Bollywood representations of India or even most Hollywood representations of India will typically depict Hindi speakers from the northern parts of the country, typically. And so even when I watch Bollywood movies or when I watch American TV shows or movies that star Indian actors, I don't get to hear my language. Hmm. And so I watched Mindy Killings, Never Have I Ever, which actually does portray a South Indian family. And the dad uses this one Tamil word to refer to his daughter. It's called Kanna, which means, like roughly translated, it means like darling or sweetheart. And it gave me so much joy just to hear that single word. And it's such a tiny little thing to obsess over. But it was so important to me because I haven't heard anybody speaking that language. Right around me. My partner is also Tamar, and so we speak to each other in that language. When I call my family, we speak to each other in the language. But, you know, most of the time, I'm not really seeing representations of my culture or my food or my language. So having this one tiny morsel thrown my way <laughs> just absolutely made my entire week when I saw that show. So yeah, when I go home, there's so many things that I'm like, I don't get to hear that. I don't get to smell that. I don't get to see that. That's lovely. 
I'm gonna go even a little bit deeper. I was wondering if you'd be up for chatting a little bit about IDP, mm-hmm. the intergroup dialogue project here at Cornell. You've described it in the past as an eye-opening experience. Yeah. So when I mentioned that there's this wealth of social knowledge that I didn't have access to because I didn't grow up in this country, IDP or the Intergroup Dialogue Project is one of the key ways that I was able to fill that vacuum. And IDP isn't, it's not, you know, American history or American politics 101, but what it did help me understand was the concept of social identity and the concepts of privilege and oppression. And that's something I honestly think I needed even if I had continued to live in India because it's not something that I think most of us receive any kind of formal education or training on. Yeah. As someone who majored in science and was trained as a scientist, I wasn't really exposed to anything sociological or anything on the humanities side side of things. And I'm realizing now how critical that is just to my development as a a human being and as a scientist to understand that. And so my first experience with IDP was really uh, when I took their graduate course. So they have a course that's meant for graduate students and postdocs hosted twice a year. And so I took it and I remember being overwhelmed and confused when I first took the course because it's intense. It's, it's very heavily packed with a lot of content, but it's also intense because it really forced me to evaluate how I move through the world and to really dig deeper into my identities and my understanding of who I was. And I remember at one point in the course, we do this activity called a testimonial, where essentially I had to choose one aspect of my identity that I considered myself privileged in. And then I had to sort of write down in sort of free form what my thoughts were on that privilege, how I thought that particular identity had been shaped, and what the impact of privilege had been on my life, which is a great activity would recommend for anyone who's trying to understand themselves better and understand privilege better. And I remember weeping and sobbing after I finished um, writing out my assignment. And it wasn't because I felt ashamed or guilty, which I think are completely normal feelings when thinking about privilege, but it was just because in that moment, it was just so clear to me that human beings inflict so much pain and suffering on each other. And even though I happen to be part of a privileged identity for that particular category, I could feel firsthand some of the impacts of that privilege and what it had done to my friendships and my social relationships and my assumptions about other people that I had known throughout my life. And it was just, it was a lot. It felt very overwhelming to really see in concrete, specific terms all the tolls that privilege had taken from my life. And that's something that I found really fascinating about IDP because people are very good at talking about identities that they don't have power in. So I have a lot of experience talking about misogyny or sexism in my life because there's so many instances when I've experienced random comments or specific instances of discrimination. But what is harder for me to do is is think about the times where I have been in a position of power as a straight person, you know, or back in India as as someone who came from an upper caste family and thinking about those instances and really questioning how have I been trained to think about sexual orientation? How have I been taught to think about caste and caste politics? 
And what kind of impact does that have on the world? Because it's easy to feel as if I'm passively moving through the world and I don't have any real power, especially when the identities that I focus on are the ones where I feel like I'm weak, where I feel like I, I don't really have decision-making power or the power to influence things. But the truth is that all of us do influence the world around us in tiny little ways based on decisions we make. And so IDP gave me such a good framework for thinking about privilege and oppression and systems of privilege and oppression, both from a personal and a systems level lens. It sounds very challenging to do, to kind of sit with that. It's been a continuous process. The course was only about three weeks. And so I've been co-facilitating the course for the next few iterations since then. And I know that every single time that I've you know taught the course, I have learned things from it. And it's been such a continuous process. And the biggest value of the IDP community and this course to me is having a community of people whom I can be honest with, which is really, really hard to find, even amongst people who are engaged in the work. Because I think people have different levels of understanding about the, the concepts that we're talking about and the systems that we're talking about. And so finding people with whom you can sit down and say, I did a really shitty thing today. <laughs> I'm a cis person and I accidentally misgendered someone today. I don't feel good about it. It was absolutely a terrible thing to do and I apologized immediately afterwards. But you know what? I did that. And then not having yourself be judged for it and not having people shunning you for it. So understanding that working on your privilege and working on becoming a better human being and a better ally is a continuous process. So language is so incredibly important. Do you think that the fact that through IDP you were able to kind of like give words for certain things that you had felt or thought, do you think that was a factor? Absolutely, it was. And so much of that is because IDP, the readings that they give us are really derived from professors and thinkers in sociology. And so we're reading, you know, textbooks and research that has been done in this field. And this is something I think that a lot of people in science can be unaware of sometimes when they talk about diversity issues and respectability politics and things like that, is that there is a body of work. There are people who have been doing this for decades, right? I haven't seen a lot of awareness around that field in a lot of my fellow academics, but it was really helpful for me to read and just to build a base of knowledge. And for me, at least, the better my vocabulary, the better my understanding of things. If I know how to express something, even just to myself, it becomes easier to think through it. Otherwise, you're just struggling to figure out how to express it. But once I have the word for it, it's just easier then to go to the next step in my mind. And that might not be true for everyone because we all think in such different ways. But so that was really helpful for me. Understanding what privilege means and understanding what oppression means, for example. Before IDP, they were just words. I didn't exactly know. I didn't understand their full impact. I didn't understand how they personally applied to me. They felt pretty distant. But understanding the sociological context behind those words and how they apply to me in a very personal sense helped me to deal with the feelings that those words produced and then move on from them to, okay, I have privilege. What am I going to do about it? Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. It's been so great to talk to you. It's been wonderful. Thank you, seriously. Same here. This was such a special conversation for me. Denani's candid account of how her identity-based experiences affect how she engages the world has been really inspiring. And I want to thank her again for joining me. 
I hope this has given you all, as it has given me, an opportunity for reflection. For me, it's been a chance to tune into my inner voice, to look within without judgment, but with a willingness to truly learn and change in order to actually be a full participant in my life. I'm not just a spectator or someone partially involved, held back by my own preconceptions. It's been so much fun to learn about what research and soil microbial ecology can look like. And I loved learning about streptomyces and biodiversity. And it was actually a little amazing how Jenny remembered the exact moment that changed the direction her career would go in. Can you think of that moment for you? Our music is Float and Fly by Golgartelli. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you again soon.